Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on April 29, 2016, and is titled The Witness, a social cinema screening, and features James Solomon, director and producer of The Witness, William Genovese, brother of Kitty Genovese, Michael Daly, correspondent at The Daily Beast, and Brooke Gladstone, co-host and editor of On The Media at WNYC. Bill and I were uh, incredibly fortunate to work with people who were much more talented filmmakers, certainly than I am, um, but um, who, who made this possible. Um, we have the two editors who, um, who were really immensely talented and were um, all in, as they say. Uh, Gabriel Rhodes and Russell Green, they're here. If they would just stand for a second. I, I will, uh, whether you're a first-time filmmaker or a, a veteran, um, Get their resumes. Uh, you you couldn't be more uh, more elevated by their extraordinary work. I also want to specifically um, uh, recognize, because she's so important to the two of us, um, the co-producer who's in every li literally every frame her hand is in this film. Um, she was on from the very beginning, um, and uh, um, basically realized, helped to realize both Bill's goal or dream, et cetera, I suppose, and mine uh, collectively somehow. Melissa Jacobson, if she could just, she's back there. I defer to you. Um, okay, okay, I won't talk much. Um, let me just uh, ask. It's on, yeah. Let me just ask you, uh, I'll be asking this question certainly of you in a moment, but what drove you to do this film, and how long did it take? Firstly, um, you know, to be on the stage with Brooke and Michael is there, up there for, for me, so this is beyond thrilling. Um, the answer, uh, I am a by profession a screenwriter and I'm always drawn to stories we think we know and uh, the last film I wrote was a movie about the Lincoln assassination or sort of the story behind the Lincoln assassination a movie called The Conspirator that Robert Redford directed this actually this project started as a screenplay um, or at least it was going to be a screenplay in the late 1990s uh, a dear dear friend of mine Andrew Blauner was responsible for getting Abe Rosenthal's 38 Witnesses reprinted in the late 1990s. And I thought that might be the basis for a screenplay, and I collaborated, or was going to collaborate, with uh, a wonderful documentary, a wonderful filmmaker named Joe Berlinger and Alfred Urey, the playwright, to make a scripted film for HBO. And in the course of researching that, I met a number of people and I met Bill. And I suppose uh, you need to only spend two minutes on film with Bill to be transformed. 
by the experience of meeting Bill, but also for the first time Kitty came to life through Bill for me. And in the course of that experience in the late 1990s of meeting people who, um, who were living at that point for 35 years with a, a hurt or a loss or a memory, it was very different. The private stories were very different than the public experience that most of us had. We all knew the last 32 minutes of Kitty's life and had filled it all in. And I think early on, um, I realized in meeting Bill that there was a very private and very deeply personal story. It wasn't until 2004 when the New York Times questioned, and that project, that scripted project, never came to fruition. In 2004, when the New York Times questioned its own story, Bill and I, who had been, we had been in contact, uh, Bill was interested in sort of trying to unravel the truth. And um, he was willing to allow me to document that, that journey. So you started out being interested in the, uh, in the emblematic story, the iconic story, and then you came to realize through Bill, through the subsequent reporting, that that story wasn't the real story at all. And uh, I, I want to ask you, Michael, when were you at the Daily News back then? That happened. I'm not quite. I'm almost that old. No, I, I didn't almost. think that was. I didn't think that was. I didn't think that was possible. But uh, when did you get drawn to the story during the rewrite? Well, I mean. The, when I started at the Daily News, there was a guy, Henry Lee, whenever he mentioned the New York Times, he'd always write, the New York Times, comma, a small English language daily headquartered on Manhattan's west side. <laughs> and, and in those days, you generally knew the Times guy when you were outside of Manhattan, because he would say, where are we? Um, so, and then, you're always a little leery of any story that starts with bosses. You really have Rosenthal meets you with mean the in the byline. No, no, I mean just in terms of the origin of the story. When you hear that this story began with the police commissioner, who usually knows next to nothing, having has lunch with Abe Rosenthal, who knows less, and they have somehow that all through the police department this story has reached the commissioner, and then he then tells it to Abe Rosenthal. And Rosenthal doesn't turn around and tell, come back and say, uh, why don't we go find out what happened there? Rosenthal says, well, I just heard from the police commissioner that this is what happened. Tell that story. Because, you know, bosses tend to believe that other bosses know things. So, no, really, I, you know, and, and it gets very complicated when you have these things. I mean, uh, it's not so much now, but it used to be when, when I was starting out. One thing you noticed that when cops came, they never said to each other, what happened, they always say, what's the story? Because what happened is not really at issue often. And, and what you want to know is what's the story. So if you're starting even at that level with what's the story, and it goes from the cop to the detective to the squad boss, right? To the borough, right? To headquarters, to the chief of detectives, right? And then to the police commissioner, you have all that, and then it goes to Abe Rosenthal. I mean, we've all played telephones, so you know. And I think that's really was the danger there. And the other problem was, I mean, the Daily News kind of failed because 
I mean, they should have been there that first night, and they should have found out what happened, and they should have spoken to the woman who was with your sister. Sophie. And um, that's right. Well, Michael, it's actually interesting to know, when if you go back to those accounts, Sophia, is, she's actually in those stories. She's in those first day stories, Journal American and others, Long Island Press. She actually appears in those stories. So what's kind of, as it being there, being on the scene. So what's rather remarkable is that she got dropped from the story and then never put back. That's the dangers of rewrite. That's the kid like me standing in the rain calling the rewrite, right? And rewrite kind of has an idea of what the story's supposed to be, right? And um, you give the notes to the rewrite guy and he writes, it goes to the copy desk and the next thing you know, it's history. Bill? You said... Oh, can I ask a question first? Sure. Michael, so why didn't the Daily News pursue it further? Did they just... I don't know. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I... I uh, the news, uh, for all its glory, I mean, um, the, my first day at the Daily News, I'm sitting there, you know, all set to go. And Frankie Fazzo, the, the city editor, says, there's two dead on East 82nd Street, get going. So I'm running out the door. He goes, whoa, hold on, it's the super and his wife. So I think, you know, this is Kew Gardens, three in the morning, a woman. I mean, it was, um, even the Daily News has failings. I mean, that, and that really was the Daily News' duty to have done that story correctly from the first day. It really was. And the news failed in that. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, and it, it's, when I hear it, it kills me because you, you know the way it should have been done. Well, not being a New Yorker, it surprises me because my older brother, when he comes up to visit, which is roughly once a month, he brings the Times, the Post, and the Daily News. I always point out to him how absurd the headlines are in the Daily News and the Post relative to what's in the Times. So for me, it's not surprising, but back then it was different. Well, it, I mean, you know, now, I mean, a guy named Rupert Murdoch came amongst us, and the, oh, and, and the Daily News lost its nerve, and, and they looked around, and they saw the losingest, worst example of journalism in the city and decided to copy them. It was like Muhammad Ali getting in a bar fight. And all you're going to do is glorify the other guy. And, 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 but the news, when the news was the news, they really should have, I mean, it was our city. It really was. The news was our city. And we didn't do right by But in fairness to Rosenthal, he was the city editor then. So he should have gotten it right. Yeah, but they didn't really cover the city. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now we're I'm getting sorry. into an no, intro. Into this. But, it, you know, but it, actually, but there's one thing you can listen to. I mean, everybody knows reporters are dogs, and they're always bothering people and all this. But mm. the, there is a legitimate function for reporters. And what reporters should have done that night is found out what happened. And how you can be anywhere near that scene and not have spoken to that woman and not have accurately reported to what she said. What she said is, is just beyond me. And for them, and to come back two weeks later and still not done it, it's just. But, but it's also, it's in the test, as Bill points out in the film, it's in the trial transcript. So even when, and this trial went, it went to trial several months, not years later. So it's also in the record. 
So it wasn't as if, um, but, uh, you know, Brooke, you brought up, a, when we talked a while ago, you brought up that phrase, uh, some stories are... Good to check. It's a, it's a well-known expression. And, but we heard the answer right in the film. Uh, certain inconvenient facts would have ruined the story. Her dying in the presence, Kitty dying in the presence of a friend would ruin that emblematic sociology class paper generating uh, story about the bystander effect, which does exist, but its iconic example is not true enough to be a great example of the bystander effect. And, uh, and, the in and what I wanted to ask you that you allude to in the film is that this iconic story of your sister, which was not altogether true and, and false in certain crucial areas, you said moved you in certain directions. And going to Vietnam explicitly was one of them. I'm just wondering, first of all, how would you say it, it shaped the choices you made and when did you decide? What was the moment when you decided to try and find out obsessively what actually happened? Yeah. Um, I was in a therapy group. I was more in the group. Uh, it was people who were affected by um, murders and sudden death, like somebody would have a heart attack. So it was people who were grieving, who were in this group. I was kind of there more as a as a facilitator than a participant, but nobody in these kinds of groups, everybody's a participant. How many years ago? What's that? When oh, that were you was, in it? That was about, um, let's see, it was after this, about 97, 98. And so because I, I was sort of a facilitator in it, I was a facilitator and I was part of the group, and Kitty's name kept coming up. So I thought, well, okay, you know, Plus the Mr. Question Man, and back then, I found it hard, way back when it happened, I found it hard to believe 38 people could watch on one hand. On the other hand, I guess I should show this one. On the other hand, it was, well, uh, it's the city. I mean, the city's different from the country, no? Okay, so I thought, if I'm going to be in this group, I'm going to be sort of a facilitator, one of the facilitators, I should know more about this. I got in touch with the New York Police Department. I thought I'd get a nice cordial letter. I got a large, <laughs> I got a large pack of material. So then, and this was unbeknownst to anybody else in the group, and when I informed the group that I got this and I started reading through it, they were horrified. They were like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? So the suggestion came up, and I went along with it to bury it. And we physically buried it. Now, that's 97, 98, but I never felt in my heart I was done with it. it, it Kitty, I blame Kitty for this. She would answer my crazy questions as a kid. And, you know, she'd just keep answering them, answering, what's the, what's the belt buckle made out of? Oh, it's steel. Well, what's steel made out of? Well, iron or coke and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, or, oh, I don't know. You go find it out. So 
that's always been in me. And, you know, having started with it, buried it, then I meet Jim and it's like, then I really knew by then I wasn't, I wasn't over with it. So it was Jim who did it. Well, it was both. It was both that I prematurely buried it and it was Jim. But I will say that the story would never have come together in a coherent form without both of us. Mm-hmm. Your family, Vincent, your older brother, what do you need to do this for? What do you want to get? And you said, you'll, you told your son, you'll know it when you get it. Did you get it? Uh, I believe so, yeah. I mean, when you're saying get it, it, mean, it, was really, it was really couched, well, when are you going to be done with this? You know, when are you going to be done with this? And so that's when I said, I, I'll know when I'm done with it. And when the, the scream came up, because it was the witness or witness or this is going to be a documentary, so people are going to be viewing it. Well, if they're going to say they saw the witness, maybe they ought to do a little witnessing. When, when I, uh, the first time I met Bill, he said to me, um, I needed to prove, this is in the late 1990s, I needed to prove that I would not only have been someone who would have opened the window that night, but would have gone down into the street. And that has, in a sense, propelled or informed my life. At that time, I did not know actually what Bill's job was in Vietnam, and I subsequently learned that he had been a scout. And uh, Bill's wife, Dale, describes Bill as always the scout, that that's what his role is in life. And I think you see the sort of ultimate truth seeker in this film uh, in, and what Bill is. Michael uh, has talked to me, when we, we spoke a few, <coughs> few years ago, talked about the elephant in the herd. Would you talk a little bit about that sort of the, well, about the female elephant? About 9,000, oh, what, what elephant herds do? Yeah. First thing they do is get rid of the men. The, um, there are no grown males in elephant herds. The minute they get to be teenagers, they, they let them back for 30 seconds every once in a while, but that's about all they do. And the, um, and the, the head of an elephant herd is the most senior female. And it's not because of power or banging heads or anything else, it's because that is the elephant who's been around the longest and knows the most. Knows the paths, knows where the water is, knows the smell of danger. Um, as a matter of fact, a blind elephant can lead a herd because they're so familiar with everything. Um, that's what you're talking about? Well, and I, and I, I, I think I bring it up because when you said it, you, you talked about sort of, um, you, to, it goes to Brooke's question about how, at what point do you have the, the knowledge you need and, and does the truth seeker satisfied with the amount of knowledge? I can guarantee you that if a friend of Kitty's picked up the phone and called Bill today or someone who was there that night or someone who went, knew Winston Mosley, I think Bill would take the call. And so it's not as if the truth seeker ever stopped seeking the truth, but you pretty much got as far as you could possibly get, or could get, um, it seems. But there's always, around the corner, it always seemed with you, another piece of information or insight. Or um, I do want to make one observation. I don't think more, 
the people who appear in the film would not have spoken to anyone, many of them would not have spoken to anyone but Bill. And um, this is not a selfie generation, the people who appear in the film. They did not grow up on camera or photographing themselves. So not only are they willing to communicate their personal traumas or experiences or things that they've held inside for a half century, they're willing to do it on camera. And they were only, in my estimation, willing to do it because of Bill. Either because they felt they owed it to Kid. And I think it's for a few reasons. One, I think they felt they, some of them felt they owed it to Kitty and therefore Bill is a surrogate for Kitty. The other is, I think, um, there's a, a recognition in Bill that he gets trauma. He understands it or pain. And then Bill mentioned this to me sort of midway through the filmmaking process. He's been... He's had, you've had your disability since you were 19. You have spent a lifetime making other people comfortable because, right. and it's a, it's a muscle, it's a talent. And to watch how you made people comfortable over and over and over again. The classic move is I get on an elevator and there's a nine-year-old kid who's just like me when I was nine. And he's looking me up and down, and mom can see it, and she's shoving him in the corner. <laughs> and I'm going, well, this isn't very good, because I don't want this eight, nine-year-old kid to think that disabled people somehow are something to be shunned or something that I have to be afraid to talk about. So I usually go up to the mother or the father, or whoever it is, and I go, the most intelligent kids ask the most questions. Because... The mother starts shoving him back, but the kid is because what happened to you? <laughs> and I had I had one kid one time come up to me in a grocery store. I'm running around the grocery store collecting stuff in one of these bags, you know, that you hang over. They they're popular now. And uh, the kid says, um, "Where's your legs?" and shoves his hand into my pants. <laughs> And I'm thinking, mother's coming around the corner, and I'm going to be in jail. So, so yeah, I mean, those are some of the situations. But there's, there's many things that come up all the time. And, do, and do, you think, yeah. do you think you would have, that you would have your leg, that you would have gone to Vietnam if you'd known the true story? If I can't answer that for sure, because when I was growing up, you have to remember the day, well, where I lived, I believe it snowed the day of JFK's inauguration. He, of course, asked, don't ask what your country can do for you, and we all know the rest. That plays on you. I also went, spent a lot of years in parochial school where we were regaled by how horrible the communists were and how godless they were. And of course, as um, in high school, I had an international relations um, teacher who was actually a professor from college who I think had a bit of a problem. <laughs> and uh, he's PhD teaching in high school. So we had this great professor teaching us. And he was very much a cold warrior and he was into monolithic communist threat. We have to stop it in all these areas. That, do you, yeah. Is there any 
I'm just curious so if, if there's anything that you think you would have maybe done differently or been different somehow well, if you'd known the story. Maybe, because another piece to this is when the 38 witness story came out, I'm thinking, oh my God. I mean, huh, if I were living in the city, of course for me, living in the city meant something different than the life I was used to. And it was like, well, maybe I wouldn't do anything either. What, what was that like? What? So, I mean, there was a part of me that was like, I have to prove I'm not gonna be that way. As I said in the movie, and it was really true, there were a number of kids in my fairly affluent town who were like, ah, I don't I wanna take off a year before college, but I, you know, the draft is gonna get me. So, and that just struck me as apathy, and it was like, okay, I've gotta do this. Brooke, we also, uh, we've talked a lot about this, this question that you raised with Bill. I think Bill, uh, you said also, Bill enlisted in the Marines, he wasn't drafted. And I think you have said that Kitty would have likely talked you out of it if she were still alive. Um, moreover, in your house, in your home, the grief was so um, profound that getting out of Dodge had a certain appeal. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's okay. true. Michael, it looked like you were about to... Uh... Eyes, you know... <laughs> Sometimes, you know, it's best you just shut up because oh. it, it, no, I mean, it's, he's, this is a beautiful human being here. Um, and for it to start with her questions, the, uh, it's like she helped make this thing. And, and, you know, you see this movie. I mean, if you're an outsider like me, the one thing you feel how terrible it was that she was murdered, but you say, boy, I wish I'd known her. I mean, and you watch her and you see that spark in her. And, you know, I take it as a huge compliment that she decided the Genovese family should come back to New York. You know, I, mean, I think it's terrible we lost you. Um, and I, what a compliment to New York that she wanted to come back and be part of that. So. Yeah, well, growing, I was six years old when we moved to New Canaan. And when my cousins from the city would come up to visit through the years, I always had this fantasy in my head that, they so were so sad to leave the country and go back to the city. <laughs> so when I was about 12 or 13, I mentioned that to one of them, and they looked at me like, are you crazy? It's so boring out here. Yeah. What was that, the Bronx you guys were from? Or what? Brooklyn. Oh, is that right? 29 St. John's Place. You're kidding me. Park wow. Slope, yep. Is that right? Yeah. I live about 10 blocks away from there. It was all Irish then, too, you know. There was a lot of well, Irish our next door ran neighbor. away from the Irish, huh? Our next-door neighbors <laughs> were the Farrells. Yeah, Bill, yeah. You think that uh, when confronted with this story, uh, the, the heavy foot of the New York Times would have... I mean, you heard what they all said that, you know, if it was in the Times, you didn't have to question it. I mean... I love Gabe Preston, but he's a TV guy. And you know, as is Mike guy, Wallace, so, you know, so they'll, they'll find guys. any excuse not to do their, their own research. I mean, I don't, I don't think any legitimate reporter would consider the Times as having a heavy mm -hmm. foot. I just... I mean, if nothing else, you'd take it, it'd be pretty... You wouldn't mind knocking them around a little bit. Right. But the... Um, it's just, it was a failure. And I think... And I'm not so sure it's that, you know... You know, you don't want to ask too many questions to screw up a good story. I think it's probably more likely, and you often see this with detectives, and it leads to the wrong people getting locked up, is tunnel vision. 
is it's it's tunnel vision has an incredible power. Be it if you're a detective working a murder or a reporter working a story or a guy sending Marines into war. I mean, if, if you have a sense of what that story is, it isn't. It's bias. It's uh, yeah, you just don't the see the other things. Bias? You just don't see the other things that normally would kind of make you think, you know, wait a minute, you know, who's at the top of that stairs or what's that? There's a hand on the plane. It looks like somebody slipped. Who was that? You know, I mean, there's tunnel vision stops you from seeing those things. One thing that I admired so much about among so many things that I admired about the film was the, uh, the arc it had. And at the end, you really felt like your family was finally having the celebration of Kitty that had been put off for half a century. Kind of, your younger brother never went to the funeral. There was never a kind of wake or a moment of recollection, but everybody talked about running away from her death by burying her life. And there you saw those pictures of people rediscovering her and knowing her, you finding out who she was. I mean, there, there was, I, I'm, I was curious about your closure because I felt some. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a real tribute to the way the film was constructed and, uh, and your role as our Virgil through that journey. Yeah, well, one point. My younger brother didn't go because he wasn't allowed to go. Right, They didn't yeah. let him go. And I'm glad they didn't let him go because my mother was so distraught. She was fainting, falling into the casket, and as it was being lowered, and it was, it was just a horrible scene. Okay, that's one thing. What was the second part of the question? Uh, um, it was more of an observation. Observation. Yeah. I just wondered whether uh, we should take some questions. I just want say it again. I, I do I just Q and A. I just want to just oh. a quick observation, which is that um, I think in, on one level the film is sort of an investigation. Bill's investigating the truth or what happened that night, but for for me or and for the filmmakers and the who worked on this, it's a love story. It's a love story about a brother reclaiming his sister's life from her death. He does it for all of us because we only know Kitty for the way she died. But actually it turns out for the family, for Bill's family, the same was pretty much true with some degrees of You had to difference. drag him kicking and screaming every once in a while and into, it, into the story. I mean, your family, trouble hearing it's, the, it's this mic, either I get too close and pop or I get too far. There's a lot of uh, extraneous noise. No, you don't. Um, I was just saying, even though your family was sort of uh, kicking and screaming in, as you were dragging them further and further into the details, they said, please don't share, and you insisted on sharing. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. That's, I'm a contrarian. You can blame <laughs> that on Kitty, and you can also probably blame this documentary on her because question, 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 I mean... I don't know, if somebody approached, let's say I wasn't there, let's say I didn't have that relationship with Kitty. If Jim approached somebody else in the family, I, don't, I can't say one way or the other what would have happened. You, you pretty much can, can't you? You talked about, you know, she would talk to you about Einstein and time and... What's that? You talked to me before the movie about how she would talk to you about oh, Einstein yeah. she, and time. She would, and, she would always... Uh, hit me with this stuff and it was like to perk my interest and in, in pursue things. 
So she talked about the twin paradox, among many other things. So the twin paradox, for those who, does anybody, raise your hand if you know what that is. You do? Not too many. Twin paradox is... Time travel, time, basically. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. It's time dilation, because it depends on your inertial frame of reference. So she says to me, okay, we have a pair of twins. They're on the planet Earth. One gets in a rocket ship and goes almost to the speed of light. So you have to be 92, 93% or more of the speed of light to really have this effect be profound. So they go out into space. They experience two weeks is going by. They come back, they land, and the twin has aged 40 years. The other guy aged two weeks. Like, what? See, the, I thought about it because it seemed like there was a little time travel going on here. And that the, um, all these years later, beginning with those questions that she would ask you, here's Kitty. And um, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, it's presumptive of me to say that, but I, it, but I really felt that watching the movie and then knowing you were here. And yeah. I, to me, it's, it's kind of... Well, part, and, part and, of it... Why don't you say, yeah. and the filmmaker also felt the same. I think when the first time you told that, you described that to, to us, I think we felt the same experience that was occurring. I, um, these screenings are so hugely important to little films like ours. And you guys know that because you see filmmakers come through here. Um, uh, we, if you uh, reacted or responded, as I said, positively or negatively, but think someone might enjoy or, or be interested in the film, um, we have uh, a uh, Facebook page, it's The Witness Film, a Twitter, The Witness Film, and a website, Kitty Genovese Film. It's all on this card. We open on June 3rd, correct, Film Rise, uh, at IFC Film Center. Um, and as you folks know, it's a very sophisticated uh, film uh, series, you all know that opening weekend is critically important to the life of the film. So please, if you responded, as I said, please do communicate to others and follow us and we will let you know because it will, if it does well that first weekend, it will show in other theaters in New York and elsewhere. So please do um, let others know. And a, a profound thanks to these two who really are heroes of mine. and. The degree to, and also Brooke, who is a particularly dear friend and was of my brother's, and so generous of her to do this. Um, and also a thank you to Beth. And also I want to acknowledge Dale Genovese, who is here. So Dale, would you just wave, where are you? Um, uh, and last but certainly not least, thank you, Bill. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.